All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Hacked History. We are back, and uh, we're not wearing black, unfortunately. So. Well, no, because I don't, I don't discriminate. And I was trying to make a classic that? rock reference. Now we're gonna get sued by ACDC. God damn it! <laughs> get to get the ghost of Angus Young down it here. It is a sincere goal to be sued by every <laughs> single classic rock band we could possibly be. Well, sued we by. just missed Eddie Van Halen about what by three days. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Well, his estate can still sue us. Oh, let's do that. <laughs> and uh, just uh, let's make sure we get sued by Billy Billy Joel when I go ahead and say we didn't start the fire, but uh, we it's did always, start we did start the podcast. It was always burning since the world's been turning. Yeah. yeah. Did you hear my shitty joke? Yeah, I did. Wow, that was really insecure. Like he really needs <laughs> a valid. Did you hear my joke? Did you hear my joke? I want to know. Anyway, anyway, we're here with Act History. Uh. Uh, usual shenanigans, we're back at Watergate. I believe this is part three, if my memory serves correct. Part three, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, uh, so far, we've got the background, we got some arrests have been made. Maybe five. And then maybe we're going to find out some stuff here. Uh, That's the plan. How this stuff uh, went down, more so than what we've already found out. Uh, we're going to figure out how they tried to hide this bullshit, yep. uh, this bull jive. Uh, it. <laughs> so, go ahead and follow us on social media uh, if you want. Uh, I mean, it's pretty cool. I post some cool stuff. Uh, oh, our Instagram. Oh, 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 there's a big dick energy going Instagram on right now. Hacks underscore history. Uh, we're on Facebook as on uh, Hacks History. Uh, and then we're on email. You can email us. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I said we're on email. But you you know, can, we're you can, on the interwebs right now. You can go and shoot us an email at hackshistory101 at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments that you want to go ahead and send directly to us, uh, we will go ahead and check that. So uh, if you want to do that. Please go ahead and follow us. Oh, and please go ahead and, and give us a rating on whatever you're listening to us on if you can. Uh, you know, we do appreciate the ratings. It does help us grow. Also, Apple Podcasts, if you guys are listening to us on their five-star rating, not because we want to be attention horse, but because it literally does not give a shit otherwise. Five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts if you care about us at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't have to. We're not forcing you. No, you don't have to, but please do. Uh, but if you don't, you know, it's okay. We in know. the words of the special counsel, it would be highly indicative that you do. Highly indicative. Oh, yeah. We're going to figure out how many of the 12-year-olds that listen to this podcast understand that word. Today's the day. <laughs> All right, we're going to get right into yeah. it. Jake, uh, let's go Watergate part trace. Trace, yes. Um, so basically what we're getting in with part trace here is the cover-up officially. Part quattro? I've done that. Part four... <laughs> <laughs> part four is going to be the Washington Post's involvement in it, and then ideally part five will be the penultimate like resignation and what happens and a little bit and of a little bit of forward. Dear God, let's hope that's only part five because Jake is going to go crazy if he keeps researching. Well, I, I like it because the fact is at this point in time I'm now becoming like I we <laughs> it was weird. I was reading the book of all of the president's men and all of a sudden i heard from like somebody behind me while i was at work on tuesday or, or thursday because I, I teach uh that somebody said something about putting money into a bank account and shifting it and i'm and we're like i'm immediately at the part where they're talking about like checks and shit okay. and i'm like oh my god she knows <laughs> in my <laughs> mind and i i like <laughs> like the, the call message, just a hot minute. There's a glitch in the matrix. Oh my god, <laughs> they're doing it again. Something you can't do. So anyway, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about what is considered to be sort of like the official version of the cover-up. 
And then Watergate, we're going to talk a little bit more about the process that it came, because obviously with Watergate, the two reporters, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, they are, like, hugely in... Oh, God, I'm trying to think of the word. Screw it. They are hugely important. We're going to tell you why Bob Woodward is important and why it matters that he's still doing things today. And Bernstein, I'm pretty sure. I don't think he died. I don't think Bernstein still... Is Bernstein still doing things? No, no, they both are doing stuff. Oh, okay, because I know, I know Woodward uh, they, writes a lot of yeah, books. Yeah, no, but... they, they come... They, Woodward had, but then Bernstein has kind of taken a bit of a lull because he, he is getting up there in age. But I think the latest one that he did was... I thought it was 9-11, but I couldn't be sure. I okay. may be getting the two mixed up off of, off well, of that. No, because Woodward is the one who keeps writing about Trump and stuff like that. Yeah, so then Bernstein did do one about 9-11, uh, either during 2001 or sometime after it. Gotcha. Primarily talking about like the government's response and Dick Cheney, who is, in all honesty, a, <laughs> he is like a fucking <laughs> cartoon <laughs> dick. He's like a cartoon bad guy. I just like saying your name, Dick. <laughs> George W. <laughs> just sitting there, Cheney's in his chair, just like, in hell, like, Shoot it down. <laughs> There's no airplane. Shoot it down. What the fuck do you want, Dick? Wanna wanna go duck hunting? So anyway, getting back to 1972. So immediately following the break-in, uh, we discussed in the second episode, we Nixon's overall reaction, like he heard about it pretty much the day after, could be summed up in the short sentence that was actually recorded in his office, because that was a smart move. Um, he recorded everything. Yeah, so. pretty much. It really bit him in the ass. <laughs> he basically said to a couple of aides during the time we were briefing him on it, he basically said, it's going to be forgotten. Who the hell is going to keep it alive? That's going to be kind of like our starting point. So it indicates to us that Nixon was pretty much committing like a grave overconfidence. It's going to be forgotten. Yeah, who the hell is going to turn? And that's the thing. It's like he seemed so confident then, and he actually remained confident up until kind of the end that he wasn't going to get caught in the shit that he would be implicated in. Even though he didn't directly order it that much we know, he definitely had a hand and he knew about it. And it's like, it's he a definitely president. wasn't saying, hey, don't do this. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, wasn't, only... he wasn't actively saying, this is a bad idea, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and remember, in the last episode we were talking about, Watergate was happening in 1972. That was a presidential election year. Yeah. Now, the reason why that matters at all is because even though that would have been, like, hugely, like, a problem, even now, that would probably dominate, like, CNN's big graphics budget for about maybe 50 to 60 percent where Wolf Blitzer would be standing in front of maps and charts telling me how numbers work. This is Wolf Blitzer walking the situation room. Oh my god, it's just covered in like pen ink and fucking he's got cigarettes like, alright, let me, let me fucking lay one down for you right now. How about this? You don't even know. Bring up the graphics. <laughs> We're gonna need to get Anderson in here to phase him out because he's just not doing this okay. Is, this is Anderson Cooper. Welcome to Anderson Cooper 360. Yeah. Uh, what we like do is we go around the world. I am the then whitest we come right man back again, and then we go back. Pretty much, <laughs> fucking with the most like <laughs> literal Cooper seven twenty. <laughs> He's just spinning in his office chair behind his desk. It's like the cameraman's like, God damn it, you know? Anderson, I can't get a starting shot. You I, need to stop moving. Like in order to make that show realistic, they need to shoot it on a revolving platform. <laughs> so he's really going to 360. The entire fucking show. Oh, man, that would make you so fucking pissed. economics. And he, well, the problem is that he's trying to keep eye contact with the guy he's interviewing. So he's like talking with like, I don't know, like Mueller or whatever it would be like a year from now when they're talking oh. about like the special counsel investigation. And he's in the chair is like, no, Mr. Mueller, what, um, I want, uh, I think I gotta get over the chair uh, here Mr. and talk to you. Mr. Mueller, just one second. 
<laughs> we just like fucking vomits. <laughs> oh, what they oh, have done is they've replaced uh, my switch remote. They've replaced my chair with the tilt roll. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you, it's going right. <laughs> fucking dizzy like a twelve year old. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, basically, yeah, this would be considered sort of like a huge deal because Nixon seemed pretty confident that it was like who the fuck cares. And, again, this probably would have dominated a news cycle because, number one, this is so close to an election. This yeah. is political espionage, which is bitching when it comes to selling papers. The political problem espionage was... espionage is, like... I, I had a metaphor. It's just gone. Is it like the Travis Scott meal at McDonald's? It's lit! Okay. That... <laughs> God damn it. Now we're getting sued by Travis Scott! You know what? He... I don't even think he knows what a lawyer Let's talk is. shit about Jay Balvin. Let's talk about how he is a meal at McDonald's now, too. Uh, anyway. <laughs> what is 2020? Anyway. Um, basically, so throwing that at the wall. I wasn't touched. No. We're going to stay at McDonald's. <laughs> just, what happened to the, I got to be done at 7.45 to make dinner conversation, and we're just not doing that? No, 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 we're still going to do it, but I need to get this McDonald's comment. Okay, go. The, the Travis Scott meal is just a quarter pounder with, with fucking shredded lettuce on it and bacon. That's all that it is. And then Jay Bowler meal is just a fucking Big Mac. What is the Jay ba- Who's Jay? What's his name? Jay Balvin is a Latin music artist. <laughs> we like to do the Desi Arnaz. They're just kids are going back in time over people who Wait, nobody cares who about. Was the, uh, oh, I want them to do the Rico Suave. Maybe. Oh, <laughs> well, that's a fucking reference that no one's gonna get. <laughs> the Rico Suave. I can man. already hear people listening to it like furiously typing on their internet on their on their cut laptop. Like, what the fuck? Rico Suave. What the fuck is Rico Suave? <laughs> oh. You will not be disappointed. Well, you no, trust will me. Be. No, you will not. Well, you'll be disappointed, but you won't be disappointed. Just like this episode. <laughs> okay, back to the... So anyway. Um, back to the nitty-gritty. It, it, and for a long term, obviously, we could see that what he was saying was not true, right? It was going to matter. But the fact was, in the short term, at least for the election for Nixon, it, it didn't. Because Nixon was actually able to justify that based on what was happening. So when the election came at the end of 1972, about 23.5% more of the American people would vote for Nixon than McGovern, who was the Democratic candidate whose headquarters they'd broken into. Okay, one comment. Yes. If you're a Fairly Odd Parents fan growing up, there's one episode where Timmy Turner goes back into the past, and he's doing all, all this like stuff, and like basically it's kind of like a Back to the Future type of thing. Oh, I remember this episode. Short... Uh, General Von uh, Strangle or whatever. General Von Strangle. Yeah. Jürgen Von Strangle. Jürgen Von Strangle, yeah. Yeah. All right before... General he, Von Strangle's some guy who's showing up for right, war crimes. Right, no, but right before he goes back at the end of the episode, he's like, you could do whatever you want, just as long as you don't interfere with the election of President McGovern. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a deep reference. I never remember he that. He says oh. that. No, I swear. Look up that. I'm not lying. That Look is up. good. All right, I'm not going to do that after this. Yeah. So, anyway, so, I mean... It, they, for what it was worth, you know, Nixon was doing fairly well. McGovern's party was pretty much just sort of a hot mess, a bit of an old dumpster fire, basically. And at the foreign policy point here, because this does come in. Remember when we talked about foreign policy, yep. why any of this fucking mattered in the first episode was that the American fo- population was more focused on the Vietnam War, the conclusion of it. The fact that it was a failure was whatever, you know. Yeah, it sucked, but to be honest, after 68, 69, 70, 71, I wanted to just get the fuck out of Dodge at that point. I would, too. Run through the jungle. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, I mean, the fact, too, was they were looking at the improving relations with China and the USSR, right? Those, those three countries had not been seeing eye-to-eye 
for God knows how long. Well, okay, so not to get too geopolitical, yeah, but the whole thing with the Vietnam War was essentially we were fighting communism. That's the only reason we were there. We were scared that no, communism... No, the USSR was, backed communism. It's sort of weird. Yeah, yeah but we're basically fighting an ideal because we weren't... Yeah. It was a proxy war, right? We because are we are of the Iraq and, and Afghanistan war generation that's, that's where we realized terrorism. it didn't fucking work. Again, that's fighting an ideal. Yeah. You can't beat communism and you really can't beat terrorism. You which... know what? We got them. We got them. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Why are we still there then, Jake? I don't fucking know, man. <laughs> Looks cool. I don't know. And we're going to need another Michael Bay Transformers movie where they just need to, like, jerk off the military might for a while. Like, does our current president think Operation Desert Storm is just some cool action thriller? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, I do. In fact, I'm, I'm fairly certain this man does not know what, what books Coming are. Coming this November. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> a movie so horrible, it's not actually a movie. It's just live footage Operation of soldiers being... It's just foot, live footage of soldiers being, like, being carried away and dead people. It's just bad. So, you know what, though? Yeah. I love our military. Shout out to them. A lot of respect. Yeah. I don't have the balls to be in the military, so shout out to anybody who we does. You also don't have the eyesight. Correct. <laughs> and uh, I'm too goddamn tall. No, but seriously, though, shout out to our military. Yeah, I know. And the, the funny part is, well, I, may, I talk shit about the military. I have like eight or nine cousins that are... I have one cousin currently in Afghanistan on rotation. <laughs> yeah. That's... And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. No, like, seriously, though, like, I do lots of respect to the military. We obviously don't root for them to lose or anything like that. Jake was just making a dead body joke to try to accentuate yeah. the well, joke. Well, no, that would be the realism of what that basically war was. We're just, basically, we're just making fun of the president for his perceived Absolutely. of wars. Absolutely. No, I'm not making fun of the soldiers for dying. I'm making fun of the fact that what happened in that war was basically just... They never showed that like they did in Vietnam. Oh, yeah, no, they, they didn't. They never, ever showed people they just, they just gave us cop numbers. Like, Pretty much. I can remember watching the evening news and then just being like, oh, so this many people died, uh, it was a car bomb. But it's but that, that's the thing though those car bombs happen all the time that you got desensitized to it but regardless we're oh no it, it's here. awful no I mean well this is no this I don't is, know, I mean, is but, relevant no it is relevant yeah but I'm saying just we want to make sure yeah no we're, we're just but like you could to kind of bring it back yeah, yeah you yeah. can kind of compare that desensitivity with like the car bombs and stuff like that to like okay now bring it back to the Vietnam era where the desensitization of the people who are watching the war unfold. Yeah. Uh, eventually they see the stuff happening they're like, okay, what, this is enough, like, let's just leave. Yeah, pretty much. That was that was sort of the point. Like, it, people the, were the, so gung-ho to get out of Vietnam at that point in time that the, Nixon doing it was just like, go, go, go. Like, yeah. we, are, we are watching people have to run off the top of an embassy building into a helicopter while the city below them is falling to the Viet Cong or, no, Viet Cong, yeah. Charlie! To Charlie. <laughs> but the fact, too, was that, you know, with China and the USSR, it was a huge deal, where in the Kennedys, in the Johnson administration, yeah. you had huge problems with Cuba at first, and then later with Berlin, and then you had just this, just this constant dick-measuring contest of arms races. Well, it turns out when you try to control someone's political... Uh, political leanings. They're not all about it. It turns out a lot of times they don't like that. Yeah. Uh, America's trying Fun to... Fun fact. <laughs> America also found that out in the Middle East. Uh, yeah. We tried to install democracies and it didn't work. Usually democracy at the end of a gun isn't always the best option, but that's was, more on the generals of anything. What was that uh, What's that quote from George W. Bush that John Stewart like tried to uh, show? It's like, democracy is a fragile sea. Oh, yeah. And when it grows, and, and when he t- it and then grows John, into a mighty tree. And then John Stewart talks about... And, and what we need to do is we need to take our freedom stick. No, and we need to insert it into their <laughs> fertile crescent. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, but anyway, um, but the point is, it, 
this was a war that was never going to work out, and at this yeah. point, we're, we, you're, we, you're fighting a guerrilla we, war. In we've realized that, and uh, it's time to leave. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, anybody could hope that, uh, if you're looking at it from that other geopolitical, like, as far as I'm concerned, I, I would probably have been one of the same people, honestly speaking. If I was at that time period and I didn't know anything about what was happening behind the scenes, this probably would have been a fucking surprise to me, too. Yeah. I mean, overall, I would like to sum it up by saying that like the nation was ready to leave the Dash Tope's turmoil of the 60s. Yes, that does sound totally scripted because I wrote it down in my notebook. The Dash Tope's turmoil I, 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 I was currently at, at the time, I was channeling my inner English student. But the fact was, was I mean, you were trying <laughs> to do that. fucking pet and quilts. Just <laughs> the Dash Tope's of the 1960s. Dear Swift, you haven't called me, but I've sent you some letters. I guess they haven't got to you yet, or whatever that Eminem song is. Um, I'm not. I'm not cool. Anyway, but I mean that idea was that there was going to be some sort of like peace and stability in the 70s, and that and that makes sense because when I'm looking at it from the Watergate perspective, the average American is going to look at the break-in and say this is isolated from the rest of what's going on. In fact, the election right. basically just sort of covered up all that a little bit. Put a nice little some flex seal on it. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> just some Phil Swift. Just slap, flex seal. slap some flex seal on it. Yeah. And the fact was that. Um, it made things kind of like easier for the president because he did get nominated to get reelected again. Regardless of what was said, there was some issues that Nixon was seeing. There was what I call trepidation. So, look, cool. yeah, Before we get into that, let's remind everybody when the break-in happens. Oh, the break-in the election happens. Yeah, yeah. So to kind of drive home my point here. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the the break-in part. I mean, honestly, I don't know what it. It, it obviously every election that I know of presidential has happened in November. The second week of it's, November. It's, 19, the, it's the first Tuesday. The first Tuesday? Uh, two, yes. first, first Tuesday, Tuesday of, November. of November. The break-in in Watergate happened. Oh, buddy. I'm going to have to go back in my notes. I do not seem well prepared, but I dun, am. Because I have about 118 pages. Anyway, it happened around June 17th of 1972. So there was a lot okay. of wiggle room. Like, yeah. the, the RNC hadn't even happened yet. Neither the DNC, com- like, the... The, well, the big right like conferences because those generally happen in late July. Or yeah, August, and the right? big conferences yeah. yeah happen in the later part of the summer, and so for what it was and worth. This is back where those conferences actually fucking mattered. Dude, that was back in conferences when everybody wore a fucking skimmer hat. I want that back. <laughs> I want the fucking hat you, back. It would have been nice if we would have been able to have a DNC this year. <laughs> Gotta love twenty twenty. What happened to all the balloons we dropped on Hillary Clinton? Um, where did those go? I'm gonna, I wanna know what right wing is currently looking at. Are you, that. are you pitching a conspiracy theory where, where Hillary Clinton started COVID just so that Joe Biden wouldn't get a DNC? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> they knew all along! It's Clinton Gate! Oh god, please, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, no, I'm, no, I know you're kidding. I'm just thinking of the thought of it just fucking triggers oh, me. Oh, I'm 100% kidding. But yeah, yeah. So anyway, um,. The fact was, though, that because this was a political break-in, the FBI inevitably was going to get involved in this. So Nixon knew already that the FBI was starting to ramp up some sort of investigation, and he's, like, starting to get even a little worried. Because we obviously know that him discussing what the FBI was looking to already on, like, the 23rd, which is just under a week from when the break-in happened, he was starting to, what we talked about before, worry that that current investigation was going to chip a little too deep into what he'd done prior, especially with, like, Johnson's uh, attempt to try to make peace in Vietnam, where, you know, a little bit of a review on that. His whole fucking 
committee for 68 fucked around and got the South Vietnamese somehow to leave the negotiating table? I really don't know how the fuck he pulled that off. Like, I really don't. Like, how one guy could get that to work. But regardless. He talked to... You know why? Yeah. He has the technology. He has the touch. He has the power. Um, one of the things that one of the people he talked to was his chief of staff, a man known as H.R. Haldeman. And he's going to be a big person all the way oh, He comes through. Yeah, he's way yeah. in this. Yeah, real deep. He's balls deep. So, basically, he was securing the subsequent shitstorm that would come with an FBI investigation. Nixon started to discuss some possible options with Haldeman and came to this... Oh, Haldeman, what can we do? What can we do? <laughs> I can't bomb the FBI. Or or can I? Can't figure it out. He's just like, roll up the bombers. No. No, Mr. President, we can't do that. I will drop a new shoot it down. (laughs) (laughs) Just some, and there's some young guy, some like three-year-old kid who is the early Dick Cheney. Just shoot it down. Down. Who's this kid in my overlap? Who's this kid in the water to be there? That's part of the tapes they got rid of because it was just pure nonsense. Uh, uh, it was like a fucking Monty Python skit about 25% of the time. Who's on first? <laughs> He's just such doing this shit. Uh, Mr. President, it looks What's like it's on second? Mr. Mr. President, it's getting real close to the Oval Office. Maybe we should... What's on first? Now, God damn it, never mind. Who's on first? I resigned. I want to know. So anyway, he, basically, the solution... I can't even fucking... the thought of fucking Nixon doing who's on first. <laughs> Oh, I saw this one of those talkies. <laughs> Just like, what the fuck? I believe it was a young man and his Jewish friend. <laughs> there are so many Jews in the fucking government. Okay. Well, I'm with Betty Ferdinand. Just to be clear. Shake it out. That was a joke we made way back. Are not anti-Semitic. No, God, no. No, that was when we talked about the presidential March Madness and we said that Nixon thought there were Jews in all facets of the government. Oh, we did bring, we brought that back. we did bring that back. Yes, we did. It literally has a lot to do with that because he's paranoid. God. Uh, (laughs) He actually believed that too, didn't he? Man, he He really fucking did. God damn it. Oh, that's a man who was so paranoid he shot himself in the ass about eight or nine times. What could we do, Halderman? All right. So anyway, what, what they figured out between Halderman and the, yep. another presidential aide was basically that they would contact. Oh shit! Sorry. I'm fucked. They would contact. Oh shit! Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I completely missed one of my things. I was doing. I, okay. So. Yeah, I'm. I follow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's so lucky. I'm, I'm fucking lost control of what happened. So they figured out what they could do, and they basically sort of contacted a former, or they thought about what they had done in around 1970 when they contacted a former attorney in White House counsel to Nixon who was known as John Wesley Dean III. John Wesley Dean. Who had a big hand in basically what they figured out between him and Haldeman. I'm sorry that this got so fucked so fast. Um, They remembered that Dean penned a memo, literally titled, Dealing with our political enemies. Like, right on the nose. Is it bad that when you say Dean, all I thought of was, like, the uh, dairy empire? Yes. Dean's milk and Dean's milk. Dean's milk. Dean's, <laughs> Dean's cheese. Yes, they are directly connected the to all of them. to the Dean franchise, <laughs> Mr. John Wesley Dean. Yeah. And He's also a dairy king. Yes, he is. He's a dairy king. Anyway, so, oh, yeah, you know what? Um, oh, so, my name's John Wesley Dean. <laughs> I still need the voice. Sorry. Um, D, uh, they talked to Dean, and because they knew that Dean had written this memo, yep. In 1971, him and ostensibly Nixon, because we have to assume that Nixon had some sort of knowledge of this all the way back. Yes. 
They were looking for ways to, quote, maximize the fact our incumbency is dealing with persons known to be active in their opposition to the so, administration. And Dean learned this, of course, because you're, he's part of the Wisconsin Dairy franchise. Yeah. He learned this in dealing That's with... That's a business up here. He learned in dealing with the uh, California cheesemakers. Those <laughs> hicks from California don't know how oh, real cheese is. This, this is how you take care of those that motherfuckers. If you haven't eaten cheese out on the ice when you're fishing <laughs> on a bucket, on a bucket in negative 23 degree weather, you don't know cheese. Let's uh, just be fair. But also, shout out to our California friends. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, Cody, and I think Garth is from California. Yep, not? yep, Cody and Garth. Yep. Shout out to you guys. Pretty much Garth, because I know that Garth lives in California, because he's Cody surrounded lives, by redwoods outside his house. Cody lives there, too. Yes, I know, but I only see Cody's kitchen. All right, now. <laughs> anyway. God, that's, that's so weird. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. So anyway, just leave it in. We're going to leave it yeah, in. Yeah, we're going to leave it in. But, um... What happened was all of what he said, maximizing our incumbency and dealing with persons, no, that all of that was basically really fancy talk for bluntly stating, as he says, in the memo, which I will put on the website when this episode oh, comes so out, love it. how we can use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies. Yes. Yes, Dean. Yes. And Dean's memo basically outlined sort of their overall strategy. They were looking, so I'm going to kind of, I have it bullet pointed off, so I'm going to go. Like, number one was key members of the staff, i.e., in this case, People that we will talk about later. Yep. I'm not even going to name names because it's just no, going to fuck it, everything yeah, up. Yeah. Should be requested. Oh boy. Should be requested to inform us as to who they feel we should be giving a hard can time. Just, can you do some Midwestern voice? I oh, oh sorry. It. I think you should do it in D. Or they should be requested to inform us as to who they feel we should be giving a hard time to. And so what that kind of yes. meant was um, any sort of person, either political or apolitical, that they were relying on, who just was just. It's just raising a ruckus, and you know what? It's not okay. <laughs> uh, number two, dear, was the project coordinator should be de- should then determine what sort of dealings these individuals have with the federal government and how we can best screw them, i.e. the grant availabilities, the federal contacts, the litigations, and the prosecution, etc. I don't know where the Saxon's going, but we're going to stay on this track. Right, we should keep going there, yeah. And uh, number three here... The project coordinator... Like part Peter Griffin now. No, no. I don't know how you got that. The project coordinator then should uh, have access to the full support of the top officials of the agency or department in proceeding to deal with the individual. All in basically meaning was that Dean came up with this plan to say, okay, if we can identify either big wigs, either in Democratic up-and-comers or... Is just suing people? Is that what you're no, no, not really. Basically what it meant was they were going to use intelligence arms of the government... To literally spy on the oh, party that's, that's to get worse. an upper hand, yeah, that's even worse. Uh, get an upper hand in order to fuck them over, pretty much. Or, oh, I love it. or better yet, if they knew that these people, whoever they were, if it meant like if you had like a, a bill that was supposed to go through with the EPA and you have a number of people kind of blocking you, they basically could look at what grants these people had through the government, federal oh. government. So if you were like, a, uh, for instance, if you were an industrialist and you were trying to stalwart something at the You were essentially screwed. Pretty much. Like, they were just going to say, what, where can we hurt you the most? It was kind of what the mob does in, in terms of, like, sort of like, uh, oh, fuck, I'm trying to think of the word down. It's, it's lost me. It's not money laundering. It's, um, it's, um, oh, well, I'll come back to me. What it doesn't matter, but the, the mob does do this. They literally will find ways to literally pressure your weak point to make you do what they want you to do. Oh, yeah. It's Rather than just full on whacking you in the back of, like, of, like, a save lot. In, like, New Jersey. A real classy place, you know? We don't just take him to a Walmart. We go to save a lot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I like that. <laughs> that was a shit Jersey accent, but... 
Yeah, yeah you know, we're just gonna take him out and back. We're gonna we're gonna give him a good time. We're gonna give him a great time. I'm gonna break his kneecaps and then I'm gonna make him pay. Anyway, um, <laughs> hey, why do they call you Joey Four Finger? Cause I lost a finger. Anyway, um, I lost the finger, okay? God, it's not even like a really cool story. It's just, I lost the finger. I lost the finger to a dog. Okay. Uh, if you're a fucking dog, you should know. Anyway, <laughs> so anyway, what happened was that the presidential aide that was with them, a guy called John Ehrlichman, who's also another big name that's going to show up here, John basically Ehrlichman. were instructing or instructed by the president or came up with this plan to literally instruct the CIA to interfere and ideally shut down the FBI's investigation. Oh. That's also pretty so fucked. He was working with the CIA to try to shut down the FBI's investigation? Yeah. And guess what? Here's the here's the fucking mind blower oh, for me because I love it. The whole conversation was captured on the taping system that was in the White House office. So John Dean and then Nixon and uh Well John Holman. Dean originally came up with the plan and so when so Nixon, it's Nixon and Holman it's Nixon, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, who's the aide, they all looked and remembered what Dean had kind of oh, set up. John and Dean's said, handiwork though. Like, pretty much yeah. this is handiwork and said, Alright, Dean created this, he works close with us, although I think at this point in time it, either he was working at the, the this committee to reelect the president or as they called it creep, which is great. Um and basically said, Let's just put this into action. Because the framework's great. Just for a second. Yeah, creep. It's some people call it like all like Woodward and Bernstein's book they call it the CRP, but I just keep calling it creep because it's so good. This thing could write itself, I swear. Well, it's too good to be true. Like it is so like, so true like, though. How it's the so fuck sad. is it? How are you gonna name a sketchy committee creep? Like <laughs> a bunch of do white older middle aged Republican men do, and it's just weird, man. Like, do you think no one's gonna be like, hey, this is a little awkward? I know the whole thing is like there's always overarching questions the entire time, where they're like, as it's coming out, that this is so fucking obvious. How the fuck did this even happen? Like that is the question I was asking. How the fuck did it even get far enough to happen? It didn't. That's the thing. But did they tapped it once, came back and fucked up and had to do it again? Alright. So. Anyway, so what what happened was that as I wrote down and a sort of like side note was it's prim- primarily a mistake in hindsight that these tapes were later <laughs> but these tapes were later dubbed the smoking gun tapes, effectively and clearly capturing the president using government agencies for the express purpose of obstructing a federal judicial investigation. At that point, he's just pretty much fucked already. Like, pretty much, but those tapes. that's the thing. He was these were jealously kept. By anybody in his inner circle, like he would, they knew they were installed, but the, I mean, it was so weird that like nobody was like, you know, this is strange. But I mean, who knows who knew and was like, okay, I just won't say anything, you know? Because if you're if you're an aide or something and you don't want to fucking get in the way, that kind of makes sense. I can kind of see it, at least from my perspective. Like I, in the terms of self preservation. They should say something, but I understand why they wouldn't. Oh, and people did though. That's the thing. A lot of people did, but some people didn't. And there's still some overarching questions. I wonder if this was before or after the whistleblower protection laws. Uh, I think this was before. I because people, before. reading in the book that we're talking about and we'll talk about in the next episode, when they talked about like the people who were literally going to Woodward and Bernstein, they were fucking terrified. Like, yeah. they were afraid of something bad happening. And I don't know what that so meant, if probably, that meant physical harm or not. Well, that's probably a whole lot of shit they're afraid of. This is probably before the... <laughs> well, why don't you just play that off as possible violence by federal government? Anyway. Chick, <laughs> I have a side job that I want you to know about. <laughs> we'll talk about it after the episode. <laughs> I need you to take $600 of money, go down to Mexico, wash it, bring it back, and then I need you to take a submarine filled with cocaine to Bolivia. <laughs> I, I need you to egg Scott Walker's house. <laughs> 
funny. If I know where his house is, I'd do it. <laughs> that's it. That take that, you motherfucker. Um, that's for the unions. That's for the unions. This is for the this for the workers. This just throwing the, eggs in his this house. This is for the education system. <laughs> Everyone has the name of it on there, like a. Like, when in the movie Pearl Harbor, where they fucking put Pearl Harbor on the bomb they dropped on Tokyo. Uh, uh, good old fucking movie. Anyway. <laughs> so that, addition, that didn't actually happen, right? Uh, I think they did tie the metal to it, but I know that people used to write names on shit. Pearl Harbor was on the bomb they dropped. Though. No, they didn't do that. That though. was definitely, that was, a, that was a Michael Bay edition. Yeah, but they definitely tied the piece metals. I th- no, did they? I don't know. I'm not even going to go into that. Um, so anyway, what happened was, in addition to Nixon's orders to use the CIA to disrupt the FBI, both Nixon and Haldeman would discuss associate director of the FBI, Mark Felt. They talked about him because they assumed he was a guy in the FBI who did express trust. They knew he was someone who ideally would protect the president should the FBI get getting too close to comfort. Because their idea was, correct me if I'm wrong, that Mark Felt would choose his potential job as the new director of the FBI Pretty should much, something right. happen. Political self-preservation, or at least over, job security. Yeah. Over, uh, well, right, that's what their assumption was. We'll find out later that Mark Felt was definitely not that kind of guy. Oh, no. <laughs> Two words. Deep throat. Anyway. And well, we're no. Not, and we're not talking about the sexual acts. We are talking about the pornographic movie that he was in. And... Anyway, but we're not talking about we're the not. literal act of deep throat. That will be it. Uh, that will be. You can find history. that on another podcast. That will be hacked history after dark. No, <laughs> it's not a podcast that doesn't exist that we won't do. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, so around August first in nineteen seventy-two. Speaking of speaking of the Washington Post. <laughs> Sorry, got me on that one. Yeah, Woodward and Bernstein, who were reporters at the Washington Post, investigative reporters, revealed that around twenty-five thousand dollars, sorry, a twenty-five thousand dollar check was made out to the Nixon campaign and had been deposited in one of the suspect's bank accounts. So this kind of creates the idea of like where following the money. Yep. I think that general phrase comes from this. Follow the money. Follow the money. Okay. Follow the money. Follow, follow the money. money. I'm on Are you? You seem like the president. You're really all hunched over and kind of fat faced. I like to take deep breaths, follow the money. <laughs> <laughs> And so it was in that kind of that same article too that Woodward and Bernstein also kind of quoted a government court testimony in which they found that the same twenty-five thousand dollars that was deposited into the Watergate burglar Bernard L. Barker's account, which was one of the guys who was arrested, was Bob taken. Bob Barker's grandfather. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it was Bob Barker's daddy. Anyway, it was later withdrawn by Barker in a large number of one hundred dollar bills. That was before the break-in. Oh God! All right, about fifty-three of the hundred dollar bills would be found. On the five men after they were arrested at the Watergate complex. What? They took the money with them? Yes, they did. I don't why know. Did they I take the don't money? know why. That's a part that was a question that has not been answered for me. Why are these guys so fucking stupid? <laughs> what? God, the I, dumbest I, burglars in history. I have never. And they worked for the CIA. I've never burglarized anything, but I'm pretty sure I would have known number one. Not to take that fucking instructions with them. And number two, not to take not the to money. The fucking money. Oh my god. And number three, not to fucking tape the door so we know that you're there. Yeah, it's stupid. Oh, it's stupid. How they got this far, I have no idea. Anyway, around this. <laughs> I love to think that some fucking people hired by the CIA, the best thing that they could do 
for like high tech breaking into some place with a piece of fucking tape. I mean, honestly, low tech is oftentimes the best way to do it, but it's like, don't do it so it's fucking obvious. Well, yeah, but that's low tech to the point of stupidity because it's fucking obvious. Oh, you fucking bet your ass. So uh, anyway, uh, at, at the same time, both Woodward and Bernstein had come across a series of accounts of what was known as widespread intelligence gathering and political sabotage operations began directed against some of Nixon's political opponents. And that again was that included John Dean's memory. Because there was somebody within the White House, it wasn't it wasn't about well, spoiler, it wasn't Mark Felt, who was telling them that. There was another unnamed source. In the book they just refer to him as an unnamed Isn't source. Isn't John Dean occasionally on like uh on CNN, I think I've heard him on uh, Jake Tapper's show. All I know I is think the fu- interview from if Tapper Fox time. News can give a fucking whole segment to Oliver North for the shit he did, yeah, probably. Yeah, I think they, I think they, when the impeachment was happening, I think they brought for Trump. I think they brought on John Dean a couple of times. Well, I mean, that makes sense. It's kind of weird that these guys who fucked around like this were people then that we refer to in regards to that. It's kind of a weird irony. Well, it's kind of like a, hey, so you did all this shit. Like, what's your opinion on it? <laughs> Anyway, uh, so it's, the, it's like if there was a fucking <laughs> time there was like a fire, we would like call up an arsonist and be like, "Hey, what do you think about this fire?" Pretty much, it's like saying if there was a terrorist attack and CNN would literally call up like the head of ISIS and be like, "What's your take on it?" Well, I think that the the, the suicide bomb was a good touch, but I I do Listen, think I, I do that think... there are deeper problems here that we need to acknowledge. That is, I'm trying to be as unoffensive as possible. So. <laughs> We're not making fun of... No, absolutely. Uh, if anything, I have great respect for people yeah, in the Middle we're, East. We're not Y'all fun are fucking taking it on the daily. Yeah, we're not making fun of people in the Middle East, or... Uh, we're that, well, we're making fun of terrorists, because, you know... Well, yeah. Terrorists suck, so... That's the best way you do it. We're, we're also making fun of arsonists, but we're not making fun of the people who were victimized by the Of course. Well, we make... Unlike some people on certain podcasts I listen to, we try to make a point of that, so that I don't have to be left questioning whether I should be morally conflicted. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, uh, basically, this individual in charge of it, namely in charge of these political black ops operations, according to a September 29th article in the Washington Post, was the former attorney general and acting creep campaign manager, or campaign director. Because I'm a creep. John <laughs> Mitchell. that song? <laughs> yes. John Mitchell, who directly oversaw the He's Republican. He's a widow. Fuck you, goddamn it. I'm sorry. John Mitchell. He directly oversaw the Republican fund meant to finance the operation. Oh, good. Mitchell was also, when I listened to some of Mitchell's testimony, he was so, like, hard, like, absolutely not. Uh, the president had nothing to do with this. Uh, I'm like, that's immediately grounds for concern. <laughs> the best part about this was actually from the Washington Post article. Yeah. He was contacted... Oh no, he yeah, he was contacted in New York by telephone about the story. Mitchell said, "All that crap you're putting in the you're putting it in the paper, it's been all been denied." Jesus, Katie Graham, who is the publisher of the Washington Post, is going to get caught in a big fat ringer if that's published. Good Christ, that's the most sickening thing I've ever heard. And when he was asked about the when he was asked about the Arnstein's comments about the story, Mitchell said, "Did the committee tell you to go ahead and publish that story? You fellows got a great ball game going." As soon as you're through playing Williams, that was the law firm representing the DNC and the Washington Post, we're going to do a story on all of you. And then Mitchell just basically slammed the receiver down on the phone. Jesus. Subtle as hell. They'll never suspect it. (laughs) Yeah, no, because everyone's just that angry at all times for no reason. Pretty much. Basically, and and, and just a fun little fact for people. Yeah? If you ever start the statement, we're going to do a story on you. 
that's never a good sign for you. Well, like, you know, I like to compare it to the uh, the Democratic report on Russian collusion, in which they said it was happening, and then uh, you know the Republicans basically said, "No, we're going to do a report on you," and then they did a whole report trying to blame pretty much Joe Biden literally for the, Joe Biden. What are they? Blame Hillary Clinton or something? Like, anyway, no, I don't matter. No, they basically they tried. No. It, did you not hear about that? that well, no, they, they did do that. Yeah, I remember. Because that was a fucking... Fucking Ron Johnson. Go around. It was a fucking sham. Grassley. <sighs> fucking mistake of a party that they are right now. Anyway. Um, at this point in time, we're coming into Nixon's second term. And what Watergate kind of does from there. So by early January of 1973, Nixon was preparing to begin his second term following the landslide victory he got from McGovern that last year. Hell around, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. Because that only ends well for you. <laughs> Around the I'm older. <laughs> Just covered in cocaine. <laughs> Let's go back to Vietnam. We can do it again. Um, uh, Mr. President, I don't think we should. Gawful Tonkin too. <laughs> Gawful Tonkin to the Tonkining. <laughs> I want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. The, I, you know who should star in that? Michael Bud. Clint Eastwood. Oh, and what? that in that chair. <laughs> <laughs> He's just the commander of the destroyer for the Gulf of Tonkin incident. I don't, I don't like Asian people. <laughs> no, I want the. He's just like no, squinting into no, the camera. What I want is the commander to be the chair. And then Clint Eastwood's just like, but sir, we need to take action. And then the chair's just like. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> You're not a goddamn American. <laughs> not Where do your loyalties lie? Knocks the chair over and takes the hat. I'm the captain now. You just got <laughs> a hard cut to a Tom Hanks reading in his house. He goes, I am the captain now. Tom Hanks just looks up from his book and looks around his room. I felt a break. Anyway. <laughs> goddamn. Uh, so we're coming to no theater near you. Anyway, oh, I'm coming to direct the DVD in 1997. Anyway, um, so around now to DVD VHS. <laughs> 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 it was like VHS. It was like the tail end of that. Where it's like, and the Blu-ray hadn't become a thing yet. It was like, you might as well just said like DVD and floppy disk. And it was basically the same thing. <laughs> anyway, um, so around that same time where Nixon was starting to begin the preparations of a second term. There, there was a court case, obviously, concerning the five guys who were arrested, including Howard Hunt and now G. Gordon Liddy, both of whom were the dipshits across the road at the Howard Johnson's Motor Inn didn't see the fucking guys getting walked up on by the bump squad. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, the that was fucking, horror movie bitch, right? Yeah, the whole fucking thing. <laughs> Bro, there, uh, originally, I said there was one guy, and I did make a mistake There's on it. There were two guys, uh, but they didn't re- refer to it on That the, makes it even fucking worse. Yeah, no, yeah. No, literally, that makes well, it's funny because Hunt was not there at the time, and I think either Liddy or it might have been reversed. Whoever it was that was watching the TV, the other guy wasn't there. You like, told me it was Hunt that was watching TV. Was it Hunt? I think you told me, but... Uh, I, I think it might have been. Yeah, it was Hunt. Hunt was watching TV. I think Liddy was out. There's so many people in this. You guys are going to have to forgive us on that. Uh, both of whom were, yeah, overseeing it. They again come before, in this case, uh, Judge John Sirica, or Sirica, I'm assuming his name. So he's just a, okay, he's not going to come up again, right? Hunt? No, Sirica, the judge. No, Sirica will not. No. <coughs> Sirica he's was the, basically like the, the precinct in the Washington, D.C. These were the guys who literally went before that judge. Yeah. He was the guy who directly oversaw it. Everything after Sirica is pretty much federal shit. That's about it. 
Um, that they stand trial for an updated burglary case now because they had two extra guys that they got. Nice, nice. We got them. We got By the end of January, all of them had either pleaded guilty or in the case of both Liddy and Watergate burglar James McCord, they were convicted directly. So, you know, in certain people's minds, it kind of seemed like the convictions should end the, spell the end of this, right? Those it's guys over. were. It's over. We yeah, got them. We got them. Got them. Mission accomplished. Anyway, um, well, it wasn't over. No, it was not the end of this debacle, and I use that word lightly. Um, White House Counsel John Dean, who had already come up, now tapped by the president to keep his Watergate situ or keep this Watergate situation from spiraling out of control, because he literally goes before a Senate committee later on and he talks about all of it. Nice. <laughs> Went to speak with Nixon on the 21st of March in 1973. So a good understanding for people at this point in time is the dates. This is not all back to back. This there's some considerable amounts of time, months or sometimes weeks or even months, sometimes years between certain things. This happened between 72 and 74. So that's like at least two years, maybe. Anyway, um, just, just to sort of keep people in the right mindset. This is all happening at once, even though it sounds like By the way, I did confirm John Wesley Dean's still alive. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah, he's the third. The second. Oh, no, it is the third. Yeah, it is yours. the third. Anyway, um, in the, and this was, again, another taped conversation. The conversation discussed and recorded in the Oval Office of the following states this. Okay, I'll give you one guess at what John Dean's child's name is. Martin. It's John Wesley Dean the Fourth. Fuck off! That's so lazy. I'm not kidding. So lazy. <laughs> chair. Commander chair. With Gulf of Tonkin Incident 2. What's your son's name? Stool. Except for that chair, we need another chair. And that chair is a chair. Fucking all right, Matthew McConaughey. We need to get a Lincoln here. And then that Lincoln, oh, that chair Lincoln. is going to be my Lincoln. I'm gonna and I'm going to drive home. I'm going to put a chair. But what is home? Home is really where the heart is. But what is the heart? And then I ask myself, who uh, am I? <laughs> what is what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Anyway. No more. God damn it. What's that? <laughs> uh, so basically, there, and I listened to the recording of this too, and I will, I will try my best. Audio recordings are a little weird on Google sites. I can't, for some reason, SoundCloud just like doesn't like it, but I'm gonna figure a way around it's it. Because it's not a trap rapper. No, it's not a trap rapper. <laughs> SoundCloud's like, no, if 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 this isn't bumping with 808s, I don't want it. <laughs> the problem is it's on SoundCloud. The Google sites won't take it. Google sites just get that fucking trash out of here. <laughs> SoundCloud's like. It's a mess. Come on, bro. I gotta throw some 808s in there. I might have to download it and figure it out from there. Anyway, um, so Dean started by discussing the situation with Nixon and was imploring him basically that he was failing to grasp the gravity of the situation that was facing him by stating, <laughs> and I, this is a direct quote: "In our conversations, I have the impression you don't know everything that I know," which is always a good start. Great start when you're talking to your boss. <laughs> hey, dumb shit. Listen. It basically stated that this made the president's decision making less effective. Because, number one, if the president was basically running headlong without understanding the implications of Watergate... Oh, yeah, that's him. Um, he looks like a man who would only come if he was looking at tax documents. John, I'll just give you that understanding. John Wesley Dean looks like if Michael J. Fox was, like, a lawyer. If he didn't have Parkinson's? No. Well, Jesus. Yeah. I wish him the best. He is a good actor, and he's really doing his best. Actor. I wish him the best as well. Anyway. Yeah. Like, John. That's heavy, man. Anyway. Um, anyway, and stated that, yeah, the decision-making was going to be impacted. Dean further said that the Watergate problem facing the president was serious, equating it to the growing scandal to, quote, grow, or cancer close to the presidency. 
and described its growth as daily, compounding itself geometrically. Indeed, expressed his fear that the individuals involved around the scandal might blackmail the president and or rescue themselves, thus directly endangering the office. Ideally, he basically said, you don't understand. If you don't take this seriously, and we don't start getting move on this now, covering this up or, or shutting this thing down, which in the early stages, I don't know, maybe they could have succeeded. This thing is going to get you, basically. That's what he was oh, saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and a fun fact, too. We didn't bring this up, and I just, I, I don't know why I noted this so late, but Dean also was slated, or no, sorry, Dean would later state that he chose Liddy, one of the people overseeing this whole process, because he had experience dealing with the Pentagon Papers in 71. Yes. The greatest hits of political corruption, or... or I love that, like... Ah. Oh, dude, there are so many people in the book that we talk about on a daily basis that we make sh- like talk shit about, like like Bob Dole and shit like that. They make an appearance. Really? It, yes. Bob Dole's in the book? Yes, he, well, he's at least referenced a couple Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Anyway, um, so Dean then went on to reflect about his own legal jeopardy. He basically said that he was in some big trouble here. Not only the president, but he was. His explanation... And in fact, it was weird because in the recording, Gene was basically directly in knowledge of the fact that not only was he in jeopardy because of what he had done and worked on, so was Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Colson, and former uh, AG Mitchell. Uh, Who Col- else Colson? Colson, uh, this is why I actually have a person's list. Charles Colson was a special counsel of the president. Okay, so he's another lawyer. Yeah, he's very close, though, to the president. And he knew. And he was working on the CRP for a little while. Sure. In Dean's explanation, he called this plan in retrospect a bad call. You think? No shit, Dean. Like, in what? In retrospect, it might not have been my best decision. Not my best work. I will tell you that. I will tell you that. Anyway. <laughs> the understatement of the century. In retrospect, it's a bad oops. decision. And I, oops. <laughs> we all make mistakes sometimes. Sometimes uh, I forgot to pick up something in the grocery store. Sometimes I commit conspiracy. Sometimes I just decide to go with the dumbass plan. And I don't know I got the other four dudes to go along with. Additionally, Dean explained the elements of the break-in had been in motion as early as February of 1972. Or perhaps even earlier than that. So there, this was in planning for a while. Dean yeah. stated the various intelligence... He basically explained it to Nixon in this tape. He, Dean stated that the various intelligence harvesting operations were floated and bounced around... Uh, the aforementioned four men before the Watergate break-in occurred. He literally stated, like, some people would be like, oh, my God, what the fuck is this? And by the way, they were settled on a slightly stupider plan. Like, that's basically what he's telling me. Uh, I'm going to hold, hold your comment there. The overall tone of the events from Dean appears to be that he, or that Dean appears to be that he wasn't aware of the plan that was busted on that night. The Dean was kind of told, but not told. He he makes it ambiguous for a reason. I think he was trying to save his own ass there. So you say he didn't really know about what the second time it went to Pretty much. I think what out. Dean was saying to the president was like, hey, I heard about it. It was floated by other people. I didn't have anything to do with it, and then it happened, and now we're here. And the problem was that Dean was pretty much more instrumental in covering it up than anything else. And uh, Dean appeared to affirm that Jeb Magruder, who was the deputy campaign director for Creep, Magruder, who was also Haldeman's former aide in this case, and was deputy director of the White House communications staff. He had Jesus a lot of, Christ. He had a lot of fucking jobs. A lot of connections. A lot of connections. Pressured Liddy 
to get more intelligence about the DNC because there was what were, or what was there for Creep was not enough for them. Cause I'm a Creep. Are we gonna just need to pay him every time? Uh, the guy from uh, Matchbox, what? whatever. No, well, it's not Matchbox. That's uh. Hold that. I'll check it out. Sorry, keep, keep you figure that out while I got. Yeah. Radiohead. Yeah. Radiohead. And so basically, Dean implies in that that for the duration of his conversation with the president, there was this separation, actually, between the White House and the actual burglary. But regardless of the knowledge of some kind of operation, there was knowledge of some kind of operation between at least a handful of White House staff and the people who were on the committee to re-elect the president. So basically stating, you're like, well, there was a kind of a disconnect. To Nixon's credit, he did not order the break-in, but he definitely talked about it. They, he, he had to have known something, right, at this point in time. This one was throwing a lot of people. Like, where, where the fuck does he play into all this? In fact, a lot of people, when they were asked originally, were like, oh, no, he didn't know anything. And that's kind of the, the story they would go with. So Dean also explained that during the initial grand jury hearing, he also ran damage control. Oh, sorry. He was in the, he was talking, he was in a grand jury hearing a little bit later, and he was sort of referring it to the president. But he was also running damage control in order to save the election of the president. So Dean was like, again, was just reaffirming the fact he was part of the cover-up. Yes. Yeah, and his ending assertion was that because he, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Colson, and Mitchell knew about the damage control scheme, and basically they said this amounted to obstruction of justice right out the gate. For all, of them. Makes for all of them, right? Yeah, so pretty much. Moving on. Around the same time, obviously there's a lot of shit sometimes happens at once. Less than around two miles on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the Senate was beginning to its own investigation. <laughs> all of this is so close together. <laughs> it's great. That's like I would just gotten pissed off. It's the concept of like you banging your side boob with your grandparents playing bridge in the next room. Like, so to be fair, I don't even have a boo or a side boo. And time to I, get one. And if I did have a boo, I wouldn't have a side boo because I'm not that kind of guy. I don't know. I'm not questioning their belief system. But anyway, um, they were beginning their own investigation. The Senate investigation earned its impetus when and there were three basically three big things that happened here that right. set this thing off. Was it during a hearing to confirm Patrick Gray as the next acting FBI director following the death of J. Edgar Hoover, Gray revealed that he cooperated with Dean to keep the White House informed of the scandal? I just... Fucking smooth move! <laughs> the FBI director? Yes, the, 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 they, were, they were confirming him, and they decided against it, obviously, but he said it in the confirmation hearing. Hey, so if you were doing that, why in God's name would you... Be honest about do, doing that. That's the question I had. Like, some people were like, I think it was a crisis of conscience. Like, some people just got either roped into it, and they're like, oh, shit, what do I do? Like, I can't, like, you were between a rock and a hard place, and some people were genuinely, like, just fucking, like, maliciously, like, yes, we have to mind the election. Smithers! <laughs> Release the hounds! Release the hounds! Anyway, uh, there were further revelations by... Revelations? I think that's right. I don't that's, know how... I think I had a stroke. I don't know. It's like a rap album. Revelations. Revelations by Grace showed that he attempted... Also a book in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And he attempted <laughs> yeah. to act as the nation's <laughs> chief law enforcement officer by seeing the whole affair as political rather than criminal. 
and admitted to destroying DNC documents from Howard Hunt on the 28th of June in 1972. What? That's fucking good. It's fucking mint. Uh, following, also, too, there was this sort of the impetus that also gained it was that there was a passage of Senate Resolution 60, and a select com- Senate committee under uh, this was after they talked to him. Under uh, Senator Sam Irwin, or Irvin, sorry, a Democrat from North Carolina, and, and what I assumed Sam Irvin would be like sort of like a younger thin man, he is this heavy like. Now, Mr. John, what were you planning on doing with those DNC documents? Now, were you were you uh, were you scared of the president? Well, I wouldn't say you were scared of the president. I would say you were. Uh, I would say you were uh, maybe a little bit uh, preoccupied, like something like that. That pretty much was how he talked. Oh God. And basically, it was that his plan was to study the extent, if any, to which illegal, improper, or unethical activities. Sorry, I should probably do it in the end. Or the voice. The extent, if any, to which illegal, improper, or unethical activities were engaged in by any persons acting either individually or in combination with others as the president in the presidential election of 1972. Why do I immediately just think you're racist when you're using that voice? Well, now my grandpappy owns slaves and he's great. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> you gave me this long look and you expected me to say something profound. <laughs> so the committee was beginning to prepare its investigative work. Nixon again tried to contain the scandal. On the 30th of April, 1973 now, Nixon presented himself to the American people as a completely innocent individual. He actually addressed them and I watched the video. This is going downhill fast because he... He ends up losing this battle in 73, right? Uh, pretty much. From yeah. 73 to 73. It really starts to downside in the later half of 73 when the when the Senate committee starts actually having people within his staff start talking to him. I was going to say, because he doesn't make it to 74, does he? he no, the very there. beginning of 74, not even. <laughs> I would say it really downslid after the fucking tapes came out. But we'll get oh, to that. Well, because the fucking obvious. Yeah, of course. But at <laughs> the time, the there, was still, like, oh, there was still some plausible deniability. And so in the address that Nixon... Gabe, Nixon cast blame on the White House involvement for Watergate in Dean, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and the AG, or in acting AG, Richard Kleindienst, who was a longtime friend of Nixon's who had resigned. Ah, so all of which would resign from their posts. Putting people under, he's just... Yeah, he threw people under the bus almost immediately. A bunch of people under the bus. Yeah, and that was... He did not care. Absolutely, absolutely that that happened. I mean, and the fact was that he stated that the main reason why the scandal occurred in the first place was due to a divergence of personal responsibility from Nixon on his re-election campaign, basically saying to him that the reason why it happened in the first place was because he decided that the presidency was more important than the the politics. That's what he told in the Oh, that's fucking rich. Yeah, it is rich. It's great. I had to do my job. How the hell am I supposed to know what's happening? You can't hold me to You can't. Listen. You can't hold me to the same understanding as other people. In I mean, the White House, I'm the president. I've got shit to do. I mean, these people are literally creeps. <laughs> That's a fucking dad joke. <laughs> Shut up. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> that was good. Uh, anyway, he established that the main storyline, for him at least, was that this whole thing was caused by individuals within the campaign way outside the president's office. Basically, he was just saying, these were people who took it upon themselves. Not me. I did nothing. <sighs> yeah. Fucking got him. And he basically, and this is great. You're going you're gonna to love this. Nixon vowed to take charge of the investigation in a, quote, quest to uh, discover the truth, unquote. So, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, to be 
basically said, Oh, Seth, you don't. This, this investigation in which I'm involved in, I need to take this over to make sure they're uncovering. Pretty much. Like, that was what he said. He's like, oh, I need to take charge. Oh, uh, can I see all of your documents and I'd be left alone in the room with a lighter for about 15 uh, minutes? And possibly a shredder. <laughs> Where's all your telephone? Can I see if you have wires? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like, let me just uh, destroy all the incriminating evidence and then... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, it, it wouldn't amount to that totally, but it definitely seems like it. I mean, and effectively, that statement was a downplay. I mean, asserting that what he knew was little to nothing and that he was... Oh, shit. Was presenting himself as a persona of feigned impartiality and surprise at the White House involvement. It was just... He was a fucking straight up so lie. His attempt at downplaying the whole thing is basically by saying, just let me take it overall. Pretty much. Pretty much just by like saying, oh, I don't know what happened, but due to the need for truth and law, which was a fucking thing that he did, and this current president is doing in his own re-election campaign. Law and order. Law and order. And a man who has probably had more sexy shit than Nixon ever did, at least Nixon could hold a fucking conversation with someone. I didn't do it. There's no collusion. I couldn't do it. No collusion. The, the Clintons, Clintons no. and Joe Biden I had the biggest chocolate cake in the world. There was no quid pro quo, okay? Didn't happen. I'll tell you what didn't happen. 9-11. Obama did 9-11, you know it. That wall, I built it. <laughs> um, Mexico didn't pay for it, but they know they should, and that's good yeah. enough. <laughs> I mean, and, and so from like the American people's perspective, obviously yeah. people were still believing him. But from the perspective of his aides and staff, his words had an entirely different meaning. Basically saying, for all those protecting the president, should it be deemed necessary to the overall goal, you may need to be sacrificed. Basically saying, I needed to make an extinction. Basically like saying, there wasn't enough space on the boat for all of us, so somebody needs to go. Basically like that. <laughs> it was bad. The fucking nerve of Nixon. <laughs> oh, buddy, it gets better. It gets way better. It was our, as you would assume, a difficult ask for the president's men to be willingly be pawns in his game. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. No, no. I thought that would be easy. The moment you... I'm just going to say this. If I'm ever caught in a scandal, if anything, and I'm a teacher, and I mean, I don't mean, like, anything to do with, like, kids' scandal. I want to make that clear. Don't give me that look. Don't you give me the I, side I, eye. I want to know where you're going with this. If it's, like, money laundering or anything like that. Even, like, even if it, like, I, I don't know. If I'm ever caught in any kind of scandal that somebody else has done and they're wrapping me into it, you wrap me up or you throw me under the bus, I will fuck you up. Not physically. I will fuck you up with my words. <laughs> I'm a man of the law and the truth and the righteousness for everybody. <laughs> All right, we're, anyway, just, we're moving on from that tangent. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so by about May the 17th of 1973, they started appearing before Senator Urban's committee. And, and this whole thing is sort of broken up into some dates. So it, it occurred over a series oh, of... Oh, you like the fruit, like dates? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Your dad jokes are going to kill me. You know, you know how dry this would be if I didn't say shit like... Stop <laughs> talking to my side. Oh, I thought you were going to say dates. Dates are dry. Dates oh, are super dry. No, I wasn't going to do it, but thanks for fixing it for anyway. me. <laughs> so anyway. On... Um, the beginning day, Irvin began the committee hearing by emphasizing that should what is suspected to be true, then the burglars that broke into the Democratic National Committee were in effect breaking into the homes of every American citizen. Yes. Every white American. 
No, that was that was tangential. I, I, uh, I get the joke now, but it, <laughs> I'm glad you do. If these allegations are proven to be true, then what they were seeking to steal was not jewels, money, or other property of American citizens, but something much more valuable. Their most precious heritage. The, the testicles of every American man. <laughs> the right to vote in a free election. <laughs> also quoted to the boozum sack of every American man. <laughs> Actually, what's great about this is the Bum Squad makes a return. Do you want to know how this happens? Yes. Okay. So, what what occurred here is... And I got my fucking notes mixed up. Okay. What happened here was it's Sergeant Leaper. The man who was in the bum squad oh, God. was present at the committee hearing when, wherein he just sort of restated that the political pressure. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I completely reread that wrong. I'm sorry. Um, that he basically described the circumstances of the arrest, and I love the image of this man. He's out of picture. He looked like a fucking juggalo. Like out of uniform, he looked like a juggalo. And in the like the setting hearing, he's got like the fucking most aggressive flat top, like buzz cut. I've ever seen a man have. Like, a buzz cut that makes it look like you literally just, like, cut around that upper part of your head to make you look like you were bald. Like, yeah, oh, God. Yeah. It was it was just something. And the, the, he was wearing, like, a polyester, like, tan suit and, with, uh, like, corduroy pants. And the, some might say that look, including the haircut, was, wait for it, took a leap of faith. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Uh, the first person directly was James McCord, who was one of the men who was arrested. It was made present at the committee hearing, and where he stated that the political pressure coming from the White House was to the tune that should McCord remain silent, take the rap, and go to jail, he would be provided financial support and later rehabilitation and employment, ideally within some sort of government job. Yep. So there was a quid pro quo going on there already. They're basically saying, like, if you shut your trap, take this... Go down for this. That's it. We'll help you. But what basically he figured out was it, and he basically just said to the committee, it was a massive mistake that I made. Like he, that was sort of like the later part of what he said. Fast forward to June 14th, 1973. So on the 14th, the next person coming was Jeb Magruder. Like uh, again, I'm sometimes I'm just going to sort of reaffirm their position. So we Jeb. All, <laughs> so we're all fucking Jeb. Jeb. <laughs> so we're all fucking aware of who these people are. He was, again, deputy director of the committee to re-elect the president. He came before the Senate committee. Under oath, Magruder affirmed that Creep was planning with the proper funding from, quote-unquote, the committee security fund, which was this bank fund that they had of upwards of, like, $100,000. Okay. And that was what they were using to fund these sort of operations, these sort of, like, wiretapping, break-in sort of things. Magruder further revealed that if Watergate had been successful, there was going to be a similar operation that would have been carried out at the DNC headquarters at the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami. This plan, this break-in was planned to take place a month after Watergate, if it if it went off without a hitch. And Watergate was but such you a brilliant put idea. the fucking dumbest people in charge of the operation. Jake, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. What they were doing was top of the line. <laughs> God damn it. Listen to our previous episode, you know how stupid that comment, that comment I just made was. No, that's great. It's fucking fantastic. Anyway, uh, again, so fast forward to the 25th, 1973. Uh, so this was also all of what I'm coming from here. There was a PBS um, sort of special that dealt with it, and they kind of chopped up sort of the more memorable segments, things that sort of mattered. Because there was like hours on hours of this shit. 
that they had to sit there. I, I don't want to be the junior senator. I would have shot myself in the bathroom, I swear. Like, there, like I'm sorry, but it's just, like, there's, like, reading tax information all day, hoping for some juicy shit that's going to come up, knowing full well that the majority of it's just going to be basic stuff. Like, but I digress. Uh, so, special counsel to the president on the 25th, John Dean III, came before the committee. JD3! <laughs> he came before the committee and discussed the extent of Nixon's knowledge, and ideally his knowledge, about the break-in. According to Dean's account, he spoke high of Dean's attempt to downplay... Oh, according to Dean's account, the president, he, the president spoke highly of Dean's attempt to downplay the size of the ensuing conspiracy. The, and he direct quote here says, The president told me I had done a good job and how difficult the task had been, and he was glad that it had ended with Liddy. Ideally, that Liddy, which was one of the people in the initial court hearing with all the burglars, yeah. the idea was that they were going to make make Liddy take be the fall guy. Yeah, that was what was going to happen. Dean stated that all, or sorry, and Dean continued by stating that all that he had really done was to keep the damage out of the White House, and that they were, quote, others that had mu- had done much more than me. And Dean further pointed out that he tried to warn the president of the seriousness of the situation. Uh, basically, I just sort of noted that much more than me states that there were other people involved. Right. If you can get it in visual, under oath, that is huge, because then you are basically admitting that something else was going on. And then you open up a whole new door of shit for them to go on. So, and that conversation too, he was talking about, about the seriousness situation, obviously was the conversation about this quote, cancer on the presidency. And it basically ends with, I think one of the greatest quotes that somebody would ever say, is that the testimony led the committee at the end of it to focus the statement and say, what did the president know? When did he know it? Basically meaning that the president now was under the crosshairs of the committee's investigation. Fast forward to July 11, 1973. <laughs> God, two days. John Mitchell, the creep campaign manager and former, and the former AG, came before the committee. <laughs> Come as you were, as you. I'm just gonna start quoting Nirvana from now on. <laughs> and I want it to be. Anyway. <laughs> Jesus. Just gave you a little bit of ASMR listeners just right there. I can't wait for his state to sue us, too. Yeah! Girl! Wait, what's that song? It's um, Let me let your light shine down. Or something like that. I don't remember who that is. Um, All I know is in the the guitar band goes, Girl! Just does that, like, all the time. This was the best. Pearl Jam, that's this, what it is. This is the best fucking <laughs> two minutes of podcasting we've ever done. Two minutes, two hours. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, Mitchell's main thing here coming before the committee was he wanted to paint the president as a man disconnected from the scandal as a whole. So basically, Dean went in and told him the, the president knew. Then Mitchell went in and said he doesn't know. <laughs> uh, come on, creep. Damn it. I don't know if they ever really saw each other's testimony. I would imagine not. Oh, probably not. But um, Mitchell did offer the explanation that Nixon knew very little because he did not want to, quote, lower the boom on the members of the CRP. Or, or the, on Creep. The CRP, it's, I interchanged it after a while because Creep just kind of didn't make sense sometimes. 
basically saying that Mitchell didn't tell the president because he was afraid the president would start looking into it. Perfect. And that this act would have, quote, or not quote, in turn meant that the American public would have known and it may have cost Nixon his second term. Which, what a fucking surprise! Yeah. But when it was asked about whether or not the presidency should have been aware of the possible wrongdoing within the White House, Mitchell said that the president should not have been inf- should not be informed so close to the election and that any information was a mistake. First of all, he's lying under his ass because Nixon knew about everything. Of course he did. Well, and if he didn't know, Nixon, at the very least, I would say this. If Nixon didn't directly know, because there are still some things that we don't know about this, some of it's still classified shit. Well, if Nixon didn't directly know, he still knew that they were going to try to do or shit. Or at least he had an inkling, and that should have been like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, that would have been me as He president. had a fucking meeting with his lawyer who basically said, we're going to do whatever we need to to get information on the... Pretty much, that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> he knew sketchy shit was going on. Of course, that's what he knew sketchy shit, but then there were people who were like, I just don't want to tell you how bad it is. I'm like, no, you're in this now. We either go as one or not at all. That's basically what's happening here. Yeah. Anyway, fast forward to July 16th of 1973. Two days before my birthday. <laughs> hey. Well, not actually because I wasn't alive, but July 18th, though. Hey, just a twinkle in your dad's eye. Yep. Anyway. All right, anyway. On the 16th, the former White House aide, Alexander Butterfield, which I love that name. That is a phenomenal That's a Wisconsin name right there. Alexander Butterfield. Wow. Butterfield, uh, Butterfield Packers and the uh, Brats III. It was actually Alexander Butterfield who, who was inquired about the presence of, at this point in time, too, uh, alongside of this, a lot of shit's coming out with the Washington Post that is also sort of having the Senate committee ask questions like, what about that Washington Post article? What about that shit that you guys were talking about? <laughs> uh, they asked about sort of the, the existence of listening devices in the Oval Office. They confirmed their existence had basically that they were installed as early as the summer of 1970. He kind of just gave like an approximation. He said either like in the early spring, late summer, maybe early fall. Uh, he verbally acknowledged there that there were listening devices that tipped investigators off to the idea that Nixon might be holding evidence. There might be another avenue. Well, we should also say that it wasn't completely unnormal to record everything. JFK did that. I mean, Johnson LBJ did that. LBJ did it a lot more, but Nixon was paranoid. See, and and there's a little bit of background that we may or may not have touched on when we talked about Nixon the man in the first episode was the fact that Nixon's paranoia led him to create a list of enemies, political enemies, and he was so fucking stupid skeeved out by any perceived like attempt to take the presidency away from him that he did this as like a paranoid person to just like just in case I need to use it in blackmail sounds like Trump yeah uh unfortunately he like Trump is stupid enough to where he'd leave the phone on like Snapchat whatever it is like Facebook live him talking to the Russian ambassador about like secret military installations and all of our radar shit Probably, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so July 25th, 1973, former, yeah, no, former assistant, we're almost done. Relax. I am relaxed. Former, former who now? Former assistant to the president, or for domestic affairs, uh, John Ehrlichman, became, yeah, John Boy. John Boy, came before the committee and answered questions put to him. In an interview with the Senator Herman Talmadge, a Democrat from Georgia, when asked whether there was a line of limitation to the presidential power, to authorize such a covert break it, Ehrlichman responded that he didn't know where that line was. Because <laughs> it didn't exist. Yeah, it didn't. At that point in time, it didn't, really. Um, 
moving forward to July 30th, 1973, H.R. Haldeman, former chief of staff, he entered into the committee's hearings and was another case of denial of involvement regarding his and the president's knowledge of events. Haldeman also explained that his knowledge of the tape recordings of the president's conversations and his holding of tape recordings, and this is a big one. I put, I'm waiting. Oh, sorry. He acknowledged. <laughs> sorry. I wrote that weird, and then I read it weird. You okay. Haldeman explained that he had knowledge of the tape recordings of the president's conversations, and that he was actually holding one of the tapes. He himself? Yes, he was. He took it home and listened to it. Why? I don't fucking know. <laughs> was, he, was he so scared of Nixon, he's like, I might need this someday? Maybe. He might have just been afraid that this whole thing was going to blow up on him, which it did. He basically was inquired then as to whether or not he would be agreeable to bringing the tape before the committee. And the best part about this was in the recording, it was it's TV, it was televised, and I will put the link up there for the video, was that such a request was a possibility. He literally talked to his lawyer, like it was like a, like a law and order bit, Yeah. and said that it did not present any legal ramifications to him. <laughs> he was kind of looking out for number oh. one. This well, allowance... Hey, can I get in trouble for this? No? Okay. Oh, uh, let's do it. <laughs> this allowance of evidence by Haldeman was a huge leap because the investigation pro- was... In the investigation, because it provided the Senate committee with an open avenue to Nixon's personal conversations concerning Watergate. Something that they'd only had, like, hearsay at this point in time. Haldeman was often emphatically against any implication that the White House was involved in or privy to anything regarding Watergate, obviously. October 3rd, 1973, on the 3rd, Donald Segretti, a former Nixon campaign aide, explained the meeting in which he was provided marching orders about the Democratic nominee that he, which, to which... He was to focus his energy on surveillance. So basically, he just kind of admitted to that he was part of it. Nice. It was a short second. It was a very short second. At this point in time, now here comes the tapes. We're getting there. So Dean and several other Watergate, with Dean and several other Watergate participants deciding that now was the time to open up the Senate yep. committee, obviously, because, you know, fuck you. Basically, is what they were doing. Yeah. The defense that Nixon was not aware of Watergate was now starting to unravel, like seriously unravel. <laughs> yeah. Would you have the tape? Yeah, of course. But not yet. Here's the thing: the acknowledgement that audio recordings in Nixon's possession may contain evidence about conversations regarding the CRP or Nixon's involvement in the scandal was now putting some pressure on the president to reveal information that was of a personal nature. This revelation. revelation also meant that Nixon's own words could be now weighed to the testimonies not only of the burglars who, and admittedly to corrupt staff members, but also against a real-time record of events that were happening. So if certain events were going behind the scenes, they could now say, oh, so when this was happening, you were doing that. Nixon's only strategy was basically to fight to keep the tapes out of Watergate, out of the Watergate investigation's possession. And he did it in a really weird way. Okay. We're going to get into that. And the follow-up on Butterfield's information about the recording devices in the Oval Office, both the Senate Watergate Committee and the Special Prosecutor, at this time it was Archibald Cox. Okay, great Cox. name. Great name. <laughs> requested the tapes Archie as Cox. Archie Cox. Requested the tapes as evidence. Instead of complying with the request, however, Nixon refused. And he took his case to the American people and an address on the 15th of August of 1973. Okay. In his appeal, Nixon stated this. Do you want to read it? Sure. Okay. Can you... It's all of the italicized stuff right there. All of the italicized stuff. Just to where it ends right okay. yonder. This is... You know, we can tell we planned this out ahead of time. Yeah. 
Hey, you want to, I want you to be part of it. <clears throat> Many have urged that in order to help provide the truth of what I have said, I should turn over the special, to the special prosecutor <laughs> on the Senate committee recordings of conversations that have I had in my office or my telephone. <laughs> He's like the bug guy from Men in Black. However, a much more important principle is involved in this question than what the tapes might have prove that what? might prove about Watergate. <laughs> Rather than give credence to the thought that being open was remotely. Oh, no, sorry, that was my bad. Oh, sorry, sorry I'll, I'll read that. <laughs> Sorry, rather than give credence to the thought that being open was remotely a good idea, he argued that. (laughs) This principle of confidentiality of presidential conversations is at stake in the question of these tapes. I must, and I shall oppose any efforts to destroy this principle, which is so vital to the conduct of this great office. Okay, so this whole thing... So he basically said... I'm not going to do it because... It's me. important that you don't know my conversations because I'm the president, so therefore we can't break that principle. It's basically like... It's okay, it would have been like in the Jeffrey Epstein thing that he just said, we want to know your emails and the people you contacted with about this child sex ring. And Epstein goes, well, you can't see them. And we would ask them why. And he'd basically go, because I'm important. <laughs> That's the point, asshole! <laughs> anyway. In a weird way, though... And I kind of want to get your take on this. Yeah. The argument does kind of have some weight in some generic terms. How because so? I would say this, and I want to see your opinion on it, because my opinion is this. Well, in Nixon's situation, of course, in criminal wrongdoing, absolutely we should know. Presidential conversations oftentimes are of a pretty confidential nature, right? I think in that regard, the president does have some right to privacy, so, at least in regards to certain things. Yes, but no. Okay. Uh, I don't think that we should know everything the president emails or says to other people. Right. And that's sort of what but I was saying, yeah. If he's being indicted oh, on a criminal charge with merit, he should have to turn over those things to the people exactly. who are investigating Exactly. And that's why him. when I said, if it regards to criminal wrongdoing, absolutely we should know. That is evidence, pure and simple. Basically, he, he's twisting a logical point to make Pretty it much. try to work for him. Like I saying, I mean, we don't want to know about... You know, like the sex life of the president. Even though there's probably a book out there and probably a podcast that will tell us. Well, and if there's secret covert information, we shouldn't know that it's the American people. Which I get that. Yeah, because it, it's a weird thing about people where it's like, well, they should tell us everything. It's like you don't want to know everything. Well, it would be bad in, in large cases if the American people yeah. did know everything before it happened. Because, exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Is that in that regard, there is some merit to that in in the context yes, of non-criminal. But not, yeah. But not in this yeah. case. This definitely does not apply. Yeah. Uh, so the next, after that announcement, the next major development came in late October, around October 20th, 1973. Uh, taking a far more aggressive route, Nixon decided to fire the special prosecutor, who was Cox. Damn it, Archie <laughs> Cox is gone. Not yet. He fights a little bit. But it's, it's, it's kind of like when uh, when uh, Trump wanted to fire Mueller. Pretty much. <laughs> or when he fired Comey. Yeah. And he directed that order to fire Cox to Deputy Attorney General Elliot Richardson. Yeah. Richardson then announced his resignation. 
Ooh. Are we starting to kind of realize what this is called? I want you to think about it. Nixon then chose Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus to the fucking hell of a name. Definitely a white name. I'll yeah. tell you that much. Yeah. To fire Cox. In which case, Ruckelshaus refused. And then, re- like, basically resigned. That's what Kobe did. He resigned. If you said Kobe? Comey. Oh, Comey. I thought you said Kobe. No. I was about to go, Kobe. No, he didn't resign. He just... No, that was not No, he did. Comey did resign. No, I was like, Kobe didn't resign. No. That was very Kobe, uh, tragic. Yeah, Kobe died in a helicopter crash. I am well aware. Okay. <laughs> Never forget. You're right. It's our new 9-11. So anyway. <laughs> That's a hot take. Anyway, um, he then ordered his third most senior official at the Justice Department, this poor guy, <laughs> Solicitor General Robert Bork, Jesus. <laughs> a solicitor fi- general. Yeah, to fire Cox. And Bork did carry out the dismissal order. Um, Bork would later claim that this had... He intended to resign afterwards, and he chose again... But was chosen... Or Jesus. But he chose against it because both Richardson and Ruckel's house persuaded him to stay for the good of the Justice Department, right? Because if you lose a third guy, there's no three spaces of the top people that you know... Allow Nixon to fill. Yeah. And this whole change of staff was extremely suspicious to people outside. Why would he fire three people? Or he would fire... Yeah, he fired three people in quick succession. But one fired one guy and two people resigned. Yep. And this came to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre. That was like the moment when we really started to see this thing slip out of control for him. It's like, oh, maybe... This isn't good. No, not with that name, it ain't. At the Senate Committee... Oh, jeez. I wrote this one weird, so I have to reread this one again. I I wrote this particular point at around 4 o'clock in the morning. Jesus. At this point, the Senate Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, and the new special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski... Joss. Yeah. (laughs) We're now basically unsatisfied with the prior testimonies, because this whole thing... Got flipped on its head. Because if the president was just firing people in the Justice Department really fast like that, something had to be up. And now they were suspicious of the president's behavior. All three of these groups, the special prosecutor and both committees, came to the decision that an indictment of the men involving the Watergate case that was... Or, yeah, and I actually explains it here. And on March 2nd, 1974... A grand jury chose to indict Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Colson, Mitchell, and three other Nixon aides, based on what they had said. Well, we're in 74 now. Yep, we're, we're getting yeah. to the end. In April 1974, Special Prosecutor Jaworski would issue a subpoena for the 64 recordings that had been talked about. We're almost there. Oh, boy. <laughs> Rather than turn over the recordings, however, the White House just decided to release more than 1,250 pages of sometimes heavily edited transcripts of Nixon's conversations. Oh, great. This is great. Here's what happens here. These transcripts would involve the, quote, cancer on the presidency discussion between Dean and Nixon, obviously. So that was sort of a very suspicious thing because that was a warning. According to a Washington Post article on the release of of these transcripts, it details that the transcripts pertain to conversations, quote, from September 1972 through April of 1973. The transcripts were broken into two installments. The first segment was, in a way, the White House's official summary of the conversations, basically white paper on the Watergate affair. Yeah. Sort of like saying, this is what this is. We're not doing anything wrong. Um, shortly after 3 p.m. that day, though, 
The second installment would hit the public with a more damning version of evidence or events. According to the Washington Post article, that same article which would be published, the yep. conversation showed the president discussing at length raising blackmail money, discussing the merits of offering clemency or parole, God. suggesting how to handle possible perjury, perjury or obstruction of justice charges, urging adoption of a national security defense for potential White House defendants. All of that is bad. Let's just put it that way. It's all very incriminating. Not only is the fucking blackmail money bad, but like, oh my, what the fuck? Why did you record it? (laughs) And you know you're being recorded because every call is being recorded. Why would you even do that? God, far from the Nixon's administration's hope that this would shut the matter down, the transcript showed just some of the president's worst qualities. Not to mention raising more questions than answers about Watergate. Yep. One major question being this. Why was the president discussing raising a million dollars in connection with the Watergate programs? Why was he, Jake? I don't know. We'll have to figure that out. But we're not done. On July 24, 1974, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in the federal case U.S. v. Nixon that executive privilege does not cover the recordings pertinent to the Watergate investigation because you can't fucking do that. Yeah. According to the New York Times, according to the New York Times article relating to the story, states thusly, and I like to end it on this. The decisive result of the case of the president's tapes adds to the feeling that the last act of Richard Nixon's drama is at hand. We will get to President Nixon's resignation next time. Well, actually, no. We'll do Washington Post and then Nixon's resignation. Yeah, so basically what we're going to do next week is all those little Washington Post articles that were aiding in the well, And that's like the stepping stones of people starting to know because the Washington Post was publishing it on the daily. What I'm saying is we're going to explain how they got all this information. Yeah. And then... Uh, it will be a bit of a repeat of what we talked about here. Which honestly is probably not a bad idea because I'm still a little confused as to how all this went down, so... Oh, yeah, it is very confusing. Hearing it a second time will probably not be a bad thing. No, no, no. Uh, so we hope you enjoyed this one. And it will it will sort of be like a raw take on what happened. And you get to hear more about Mark Felt. Yep. And uh, we'll explain, uh, yeah, and there will not be any deep throating on the podcast. Uh, oh, oh, oh. No, we're going to talk about why you <laughs> call deep throat. We're not going to deep throat on the podcast? No, we're not going to do that. Okay, is that what you said? <laughs> That's what I said. All right, there you say Catch us, catch us next week. Uh, <laughs> and uh, have, a, have a great week, everybody. Yeah. Peace out. Yep. <laughs>